Back to the Gospel of Luke we go this morning, and back to the 20th chapter, now to pick up at verse 27, Luke 20, verse 27. In this series of failed attempts uh, that we've been reading lately to trip up Jesus, to trick him into saying something that would either discredit him in the eyes of the people or criminalize him in the eyes of Rome, uh, we've just witnessed last week the discomforting of the Pharisees, or rather the Pharisees' spies. They've been thwarted in their attempts to trap, to trap Jesus. So now another Jewish sect takes a crack at Jesus. Up step the Sadducees. We'll have more about to say them, uh, more to say about them later, but for now it's important that you remember, as Luke will point out, that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees did. And it created no small amount of conflict between them, particularly in the Sanhedrin, the ruling body in Israel where both could be found as members, not unlike Republicans and Democrats in Congress today. The Apostle Paul will play on that conflict, as we will see when the Lord willing we come to the book of Acts. Uh, You might remember if you grew up as I did, taking Sunday school classes, that to to remember which of the Jewish parties it was who refused to believe in the resurrection, uh, that it was this party, the Sadducees, you remember that uh, was the case, and that is why they were sad, you see. Yes, let's pray. Father in heaven, we... come to a very serious matter here, Um, the resurrection unto life, Uh, something that was denied in Jesus' day and that continues to be denied by many in our own day, and that for the same simple reason, rebellious unbelief against you and what you have revealed. But Father, we thank you for revealing it to us and not hiding it from our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, and granting us the faith to believe it. Now, our Father, teach us about that resurrection. And in the process, fix our hope more firmly and sure than it was even when we started this worship service in these great things yet to come because of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Luke 20, we begin at verse 27. There came to him, that is to Jesus, there came to him Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, 
The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. Because they're equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, and it will be helpful for you to understand that the scribes are likely uh, of a Pharisaic bent when it comes to the resurrection. They say, teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. I don't know what may come as more of a disappointment to you, the message that we heard last week that Christians must pay their taxes, regardless of what objections we may have to the government's use of those monies, or that there will be no marriage or giving in marriage after the resurrection of the dead. It's very difficult for me to imagine life after the resurrection being better than this current life for me, if that life does not include marriage to Debbie. Many of you share that in common with me. Marriage to your husband, to your wife, has been such a happy union, so central a component of your joy and contentment in this life, that to think of life as after the resurrection as one spent forever not married to your spouse is difficult, perhaps even undesirable. Now, I have to admit that this is probably one of Debbie's favorite passages in all of the Bible. Uh, But for me, and for others of you, this comes as something of a disappointment. Happily married Christians find this simply strange, or worse, to think that they will not be married in the life to come. Back when we were at seminary, students' wives could take classes at the seminary free of charge, so Debbie took an evening class on the Bible's doctrines of the family and marriage. One night she came home after class and told me about a lady who, upon hearing Dr. Doriani explain that there would be no marriage in the life to come, she became visibly irritated, and even angry. She did not want to hear that there would ever be a day when she would no longer be married to her husband or or that she would not be married to him for the rest of eternity and began actually even in front of everyone to argue with the professor. I suppose hers must have been quite a hubby. But that's what the Lord says. We shall be like the angels in that respect. We're not going to become angels, by the way, but we'll be like angels in that respect. We will neither marry nor be married. 
as true and authentic as our resurrected bodies will be, as real as the resurrected life will be, it will not be altogether like the life you now live. And this will be one of the great differences between this life and that one. I suppose I should also add that there are those for whom this thought, this truth, uh, actually brings a great deal of comfort. There are many devout Christian men and women for whom marriage has been, frankly, a great trial. Perhaps the principal trial and difficulty of their lives. They find no disappointment here. They may even find some relief. Others who uh, have never been married and may have, for that reason, been caused to feel like second-class citizens in the church during this life find no disappointment here either. In fact, it may be for them the affirmation of their rights as full citizens in the kingdom of God. Now, before we go much further, I need to remind you that this passage is not primarily about marriage. Marriage just happens to be the ground on which the Sadducees decided to engage Jesus in a verbal fencing match. Yet there are some things to learn here about marriage, nonetheless. So I want to spend the rest of the time uh, this morning considering three main areas, namely matrimony, mortality, and merit. First, consider the matter of matrimony or marriage. Now, the Sadducees, they weren't really all that interested in the answer to this question, this answer they posed about the wife with seven husbands and which one would be her husband after the resurrection. They didn't even believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in an afterlife. So the question they asked really isn't very genuine at all, at least not one that they themselves take very seriously. They had no real interest in what supposedly happened to people in the world to come. This question amounted in argument to what is called reductio ad absurdum, to an attempt to disprove a proposition by showing an absurdity to which it leads when carried to its logical conclusion. In this case, the proposition uh, that uh, the dead are raised again and will eventually be raised at the resurrection of the dead, which Jesus, and by the way, which most Jews in that day believed and taught. So this is, I say, their attempt at making Jesus look, well, stupid. You know, make Jesus look the fool And if they can make the Pharisees look the fool with the same stone and two birds, as the saying goes, all the better for believing in the resurrection of the dead. It was a false question, but it was the worst kind of false question because it used the Bible as its starting point. They shared that in common with the devil, didn't they? They uh, would use the scripture like the devil did. Remember when we read way back? Uh, In chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus, the trial in the wilderness. The Satan tempted and tested Jesus in the wilderness using Scripture as the basis for his taunts. The Scripture of choice for the Sadducees here uh, was from Deuteronomy, the law that required a man to marry his brother's widow in the case 
that they had no children before he died. And so to give uh, her children uh, to carry on the father's name in Israel. This law, uh, known as the practice of leveret marriage from levier, the Latin word for brother-in-law, was for the purpose of protecting a man's widow from poverty and preserving the line of inheritance in the dead man's family. If there were no descendants, the man's property would be lost to the family line. And in a world where land was the primary ingredient of wealth and security, the loss of land to a family was absolutely catastrophic. The absurdity of their argument is that they proposed this might happen seven times. One bride for seven brothers. Now, whose wife will she be? They smugly ask, crossing their arms, winking to each other and nodding knowingly for having obviously backed Jesus into a corner from which he could not possibly extricate himself. No doubt they had flummoxed plenty of people with this same argument who believed in the resurrection. But this is no problem for Jesus. He's not backed in any corner. He knows a thing or two about the afterlife. So he replies, verse 34, with this piece of key information, and also, by the way, a fabulously important insight for us into the life to come. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. As wonderful as marriage is, and it is as satisfying and happy as marriage is to you who enjoy your own marriage, as permanent as marriage is intended to be in this life between one man and one woman, it is just that. It is for this life. It is, as we have said in our wedding vows to one another, until death do us part. That's a painful thought for you who love your spouse like you love your own flesh and can hardly imagine life without him or her, uh, let alone spending the rest of eternity not married to him or to her. I read this week about a man who, upon coming to understand this, asked if he could not be married to his wife in the life to come, at least could they share a room together? (laughs) Uh, Why would we not be married in the resurrected life to come? Well, Jesus explains, at least in part, in verse 36, for they cannot die anymore. They cannot die anymore. They're equal to angels, and they're sons of God being sons of the resurrection. In other words, there will be no need for marriage in heaven, uh, because for one thing, there will be no need for bearing children in heaven. If we're going to be faithful to God's command to multiply and fill the earth in our current condition, that is our temporary condition because of death, we must more than replace ourselves in the world Today, with offspring. And as politically 
incorrect as it is to say such a thing today. In order to do that, we must have marriage, and we must have marriage between one woman and one man. But the point is, there will be no more death after the resurrection from the dead, and so, Jesus' logic goes, there'll be no more marriage. Now, I know that explanation may not be entirely satisfying to you, uh, to some of you at least, and uh, rightly so, that uh, there are more reasons for marriage and for sex than the bearing of children. But that's the reasoning Jesus gives us, and for now we'll have to be satisfied with that. There are many things we don't know about the future life that we will enjoy forever in the new heavens and the new earth. There are certainly more things that we don't know than what we do. But this much is certain, whatever the afterlife holds, happily married people know that it must be something really Really wonderful. If the afterlife is so much better, so much more wonderful, so much more fulfilling and joyful and pleasurable and happy than this life, even though it does not include the thing that has brought so many of us the most wonderful of pleasures and joys and happiness in this life, namely marriage, what then? must the resurrected life be like? What wonderfully fulfilling and happy relationships must there be in store for us in heaven if it's better than this life but doesn't include marriage? Husbands and wives, hear me, love each other. Love deeply. Drink deeply together from the well of pleasure and love and romance in your marriage now for this short time that you enjoy your spouse. But for all that, remember this. There are even better things to come. If you can believe it, it will be better for Debbie someday not to be married to me, as hard and as difficult as that may for her be for her to believe such pure and unmitigated paradise that it has been for her to be my wife, (laughs) not least. Because I will be able to love her in heaven so much better than I can love her now. But as I say, the matter of marriage really isn't the core lesson of this passage. So from matrimony we turn to mortality, or maybe better stated, second, immortality. It helps you to understand the dynamics of this passage if you know that the Sadducees were, well, they they were the theological liberals of that day. They denied the supernatural, the soul, angels, heaven, 
eternity, hell, so on. Uh, They were also, as is often the case with theological liberals, drawn from the wealthy and powerful of that society. They were the aristocrats of Judaism in that day. One commentator refers to them charitably as the priestly aristocracy the Sadducees were. Another commentator takes off the gloves and calls them, quote, insular, patrician, heartless, philosophical materialists, which they were as well. But however you care to describe them, their views of immortality fit hand in glove with their station in life. Remember the money changers that Jesus drove out of the temple we just read recently about? The money from that money-changing business in the temple found their way into the Sadducees' pockets. They were the wealthy men who enjoyed almost all the material comforts that life has to offer. And like most people who have lots and lots of money, alas, like very large segments of our own culture, they were mainly living for today with little thought about, certainly about eternal things, which, as I say, they denied altogether. Isn't it the case that it is often the most comfortable people in this world who have the greatest difficulty believing in the next? Jesus spoke plainly, though, while we are in this life, while we are... As he says, sons of this age, we marry and are given in marriage. But there's coming an age, an age that will follow the resurrection of the dead. And when that day dawns, death will be no more. No more death. Never again. No more funeral directors. No more funeral homes. No more casket makers. They'll have to find a new line of business It won't be too hard for them, I'm sure. But uh, when that day dawns, death will disappear. We will, Jesus says, Jesus says not only that we will not die, he says we will not be able to die in that day. We will be equal to angels in that respect, being sons of the resurrection. Brothers and sisters, right now, as you know, we are mortals. We are mortal beings. We are able to die. Fact is, unless the Lord comes first, every one of us sitting in the sanctuary right now will die. We will die. And the ones we love will die too. We will die much sooner, I think, than most of us care to imagine. Isn't that a painful fact in ways that we may not even really realize or comprehend or appreciate even our purest joys in this life are enjoyed under a shadow, under a cloud of death. How does the saying go? The only two things in life that are certain are death and taxes. Last Sunday it was taxes. This Sunday it's death. Aren't you glad you came to church last week? (laughs) This one. (laughs) We will all die. But after that, one day, 
As we confess in this sanctuary, often we will all rise again. And my, how things will have changed then. What a transformation will overcome us then. Uh, We will die as mortals. But on that day we will rise immortal. The circumstances will change completely. There is sorrow in this life, but in that life there will not be a tear, not a tear to be found, unless, of course, it is a tear of joy or gladness or one of those tears that we will shed because in heaven we'll laugh so much together. It's a truism in this life that all good things must come to an end. But it is an absolute truth that in the age to come, no good things will ever come to an end. The glories of the life to come will go on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever in unbroken, unending life and health and happiness and peace and joy. How do we know this is so? How can we be certain? Well, for one, we've got the promise of Jesus right here. He could hardly make it plainer. And to his promise, Jesus added the seal, we might add, of his own resurrection from the dead. And his resurrection is our resurrection. In his resurrection, we see our own. As the Apostle Paul has it, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, of course, that was Adam, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his order, Christ, the first fruits, the first fruits, And then, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now that's enough. That's more than enough for us to be confident of the resurrection of our bodies that is to come and a deathless age that will follow. As far as we are concerned, at this point, the case is closed. But Jesus goes on. He's unwilling simply to parry the Sadducees' question, which he has most ably. He goes back now and he uses the Sadducees' own Bible to cinch the point. The Sadducees, you see, in addition to uh, denying the supernatural, the resurrection, heaven and hell and so on, they also denied all of the scripture save for the first Five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the law written by Moses. They must also obviously have been confident that nowhere between Genesis and Deuteronomy in those five books was the doctrine of the resurrection to be found. But they were wrong. Jesus takes them back to that incident He can't say turn up a certain chapter because there weren't chapter headings at that time. But he says, remember back at the bush, back what God called himself there when he encountered Moses. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob and the God, I mean, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. What did all three of those men share in common that day at the bush? 
They were all, this isn't a complicated question, they were all dead. (laughs) All of them. God did not say, however, that he was the God of Abraham or he had been the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. How can he say that at the burning bush? Well, the simple, for the simple reason that they're still alive. They were still alive beyond the grave. Otherwise, God becomes the God of non-existent beings, which of course is absurd. But God is not God of the dead. God is God of the living. Dear flock, we may lose one another for a time. We may bury each other for now. But we will never be lost to God. Never. Death may end our friendships. Death may end even our marriages. Death will maybe put our relationship on each other on hold for a little while. But your friendship with God is never on hold. Your relationship with God can never be broken. Even death itself can't break that. The certainty of your resurrection from the dead, brothers and sisters, is not based on some vague hopes, on some empty platitudes, or some kind of sentimentality so typical of human beings who believe what one wishes to be true. Mere wishful thinking. Our certainty of the resurrection, of eternal life after that, is based on the fact, the unchanging, unmovable fact of God's eternal love for you. Our certainty of resurrection from the dead is based on what God does and who God is, which brings me to the third point, which is merit. How do we merit this, this resurrection to life? The Bible makes it plain that all will be raised. The resurrection of the dead will include absolutely every person who ever lived. But not everyone will be raised to life. Many will be raised to everlasting death, unending death. So how can we be sure that we're among the former and not the latter? Jesus gives us a hint there in verse 35. Those who will find themselves one day unable to die are, quote, those who are considered worthy those who are considered worthy to attain to that life, to that age, and to the resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, for all of their differences, shared this much in common. They both pursued a feeling of security for themselves, whether in this life or in the life to come, based on their own efforts. Something about themselves. Both of them 
now know that they were in for a sore disappointment. There's only one way to be considered worthy of the resurrection unto life, and that is to be found in him who is the life, the one who himself rose from the dead, Jesus Christ. Only by trusting in him, only by resting on him, only by calling on him for eternal life does one become worthy to attain to the resurrection unto life. Or to put it in other words, to be counted worthy, to be made worthy, is something that is done to you. Not something that you do. It's something that's done to you and for you. It's not something that comes from inside you, but rather something that God declares and does about and for you. It's something that is given to you by the grace of God. We are not worthy, none of us in ourselves and of ourselves. We will never be. We could never make ourselves worthy of eternal life. Never going to happen on your own. But here's the good news, the, the great news. There is one, and I capitalize one in my notes. There is one who is worthy. That one is Jesus. And when you put your faith in him, when you trust in him, I mean you rest on Jesus Christ for your salvation, his worthiness becomes your worthiness. That's how it works. God looks on you as worthy of eternal life because of the worthiness of his son that his son gives you as a free gift. As the Apostle Paul puts it, we are found in him not having a righteousness of our own. Don't think that you can do enough good things and make yourself righteous in the sight of God. There is no such thing. Not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, that is from trying to, very hard to do good things. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness Or we might say, we might even translate it, the worthiness of Christ from God that depends on faith. That's what makes us worthy. Everyone who comes to God through faith in Jesus Christ has resurrection life. We will be raised from the dead by the power of the living God, who also, it turns out to be, is God of the living, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, is your God too. He will not abandon you to the grave because this is God's will, says Jesus on another occasion, that everyone who looks to the Son and who believes in him should have eternal life, and I will. Raise him up at the last day. Amen.